this week on the Back Table Podcast. First and foremost, I think it's important to understand the, the time commitment required to run a successful operation and make sure you're, you're truly passionate about it. Most of these trips, I think, honestly come about by word of mouth. You know, I, I think it's rare that you're going to get a call from some government or some doctor in a country saying, will you please come and, and start a medical mission here? Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast, where we discuss all things ENT, and we bring you the best and brightest in our field, with the hope that you can take something from our show to your practice. My name is Varun Varadarajan, and I'm a neurotologist in Denver, Colorado. I've had the wonderful opportunity to be on the show both as a guest and now as a host. Today, I have the honor of hosting a very special guest and one of my closest mentors, Dr. Edward Dodson. Our topic today is organizing a medical mission. As some of you may know, Dr. Dodson is the founder and president of Project EAR, which is a humanitarian organization that has provided healthcare to the underserved population of the Dominican Republic since 1995. Dr. Dodson is professor of otolaryngology and head and neck surgery, speech and hearing, and neurosurgery at The Ohio State University. Dr. Dodson trained at the University of Virginia from 1982 to 1996, including undergraduate, medical school, residency, and his neurotology fellowship. He has trained over 115 otolaryngology residents and 15 neurotology fellows in the United States, as well as over 35 otolaryngology residents in the Dominican Republic. He helped Dr. Roberto Batista establish the first cochlear implant program in the Dominican Republic. Dr. Dodson was also the recipient of the American Academy of Otolaryngology's 2022 Distinguished Award for Humanitarian Service. Dr. Dodson played a large role in my own education, as he was one of my faculty members during my neurotology fellowship at The Ohio State University and continues to mentor me during the early stages of my career. I also had the incredible opportunity to join Dr. Dodson as a faculty member for a Project EAR trip in the spring. So Dr. Dodson, congratulations on your award. Please tell us a little bit about yourself and your practice. Well, thank you, Varun. Um, first, let me just say thank you for inviting me here today. I'm passionate about this work, and I hope that by sharing a little about our project, listeners may be inspired to participate in humanitarian medical work and even start their own project. I grew up in Luray, Virginia, a small town in the Shenandoah Valley, uh, about an hour north of uh, the University of Virginia. And after completing all of my education and training at UVA, I accepted a faculty position here at The Ohio State University in 1996. I specialize in otology and neurotology, and I work both at uh, Ohio State, where I see adult patients, and Nationwide Children's Hospital, where I see pediatric patients. Awesome. Well, it's really an honor to have you on the show. I guess we can, we can start just by you know, hearing about how did Project Here start? How did you choose the Dominican Republic? And you know, did you consider other locations for this medical mission? Yeah, so in, in 1995, my mentor, Dr. Paul Lambert, uh, was part of a small mission group called ComCare International that at the, uh, that time had a presence in both the Dominican Republic and Nepal. Uh, the organization focused on dispensing solar-powered hearing aids, but Dr. Lambert felt that we could provide surgical expertise to the underserved population and we decided on the Dominican Republic based on the logistics of travel and getting out our needed equipment uh, to the country. He took a short fact-finding trip to a small mission hospital outside the capital of Santo Domingo, and he was satisfied that it had the facilities that we would need. 
Dr. Lambert became chairman at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston in the late 90s. And by that time, I had started to lead more projects and I established the nonprofit uh, organization called Project Ear in 2000. That's that's awesome. And the so Project Ear, for the listeners who've never heard of this or aren't sure what actually goes on in the Dominican, can you tell us just about what a Project Ear trip is like? What sort of things are you doing uh, down there? And what, what's your typical week look like? Yeah, so typically we travel on uh, a Saturday, uh, usually take groups of anywhere between eight and 16 participants. Um, so we arrive, unpack all of our equipment, supplies, get the OR set up, really kind of get to know each other. I mean, it's one of the things that I think is really important about these trips is the groups uh, really work closely together and, and you really become a much more close-knit uh, group by the end of the week. Anyway, we uh, begin our work then on uh, Monday and typically run three operating rooms, uh, sometimes even four. And, uh, you know, it's not not 24-hour days, but we work a lot of times till 6, 7 o'clock in the evening and um, spend a day or two at the beach at the end of the week to keep everybody happy and wanting to come back <laughs> and, then, and then do it all again. Uh, usually do it uh, two to three times per year. That's yeah, that's great. I remember fondly our trip, and you know when you when you start off, you don't know a lot of those people because there's people from the anesthesia department, there's scrub techs, you know, OR nurses that join along, and by the end of the week, you really feel like a tight knit family. Right, now, when right. you when you f first started, you know, how did you find a local liaison? Like, how did you even know if you know if you want to rewind back to when you get this started? What was your first move? In, establishing contact and finding where you're going to be doing these cases? Well, there's kind of two parts to that. Uh, in terms of finding a, a local liaison or, or point person, um, it was really a stroke of luck. Uh, Dr. Roberto Batista had just completed his ear, nose, and throat uh, residency in the Dominican Republic and had inquired with the Mission Hospital about doing some work there. Uh, they connected us with him, and he was eager to help. And he quickly became our point person in the country, uh, providing all the pre and post-operative care for our patients free of charge. In exchange, we provided him with the training and equipment he needed to provide this care. And he's become, without a question, the best ear surgeon in the country. That's impressive. And were there, you know, when you wanted to start doing this, you were, you know, new faculty at Ohio State. And did it require, you know, obtaining any institutional support or approval from the Department of Otolaryngology and the relationship you built with the anesthesia department? Uh, what can you talk a little bit about how you established that? Yeah, uh, initially, I intentionally kept Project Year separate from Ohio State so that there were no legal barriers to donation of supplies and equipment, things like that. Uh, as the project grew, we started to include residents and fellows from our own department and residents and faculty uh, from the Department of Anesthesiology. And we did develop uh, educational guidelines with the Graduate Medical Education Office so that the residents and fellows could receive credit for the mission work they were doing there. Both departments have also been great about allowing their staff to participate in the project and you know, giving us uh, the time off that we need. So That's, that's great. And so with the first, the initial trips, you know, you, you didn't take any residents or, or trainees with you then? No, not initially. Uh, just to tell you a little bit about that first trip, we, and, and by that I mean uh, three surgeons and one nurse, uh, arrived in Santo Domingo late at night in, in October of 1995. 
And I remember waking up the next morning, looking out the window of the living quarters and seeing hundreds of patients waiting in line to register at the hospital. Unfortunately, our operating microscopes had been held up in customs. Uh, so we spent the first two days <laughs> seeing patients in the clinic and triaging our, our surgical schedule. I think we performed only 12 surgeries on that first trip, but it was such an eye-opening and rewarding experience that I knew then that I'd continue this for the rest of my life. So. Wow. And yeah, the, the equipment and setup, that's, you know, those are questions I have, you know, going into this podcast, but that, that first project year trip, who, who went with you and, you know, what was, what was it like then compared to what it's like now? So it was Paul, Paul Lambert. I said, my mentor, uh, George Hashisaki, who was uh, a second neurotologist at the University of Virginia and Sue Weed, who was our head uh, scrub nurse in the operating room. Uh, there at UVA. Uh, fortunately, she uh, was fluent in Spanish and had grown up in Panama early in life. And so it was a blessing to have her there. And and then we, as I said earlier, met with Dr. Batista and, and kind of made everything go. But there was just so much that we didn't, didn't know, you know, what to expect. We'd never been there before. What what the people would be like, what the patients would be like, what kind of pathology we would see. We just really had no idea that first time. So. Yeah. Did you have any experience with medical mission work before becoming a laryngologist or was it more so the experience of your mentors that led you to this? Yeah, it was short answer here is no, I did not. Uh, none of us really had any idea what supplies to bring uh, other than the basic equipment we needed to perform an ear surgery. Um, and it's funny to think back now that that we're as organized uh, as we are and have processes in place to obtain our supplies at almost zero cost. Uh, I remember packing our supplies into a few cardboard boxes and seeing them come up onto the luggage conveyor, ruptured with all the supplies uh, strewn out <laughs> over the conveyor belt. And I just thought, oh Lord, you know, we're oh, in for man. a tough week here, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but it worked out. And, uh, you know, now each of the participants that travels with us, uh, takes a rolling duffel bag full of supplies. Everything is, is, uh, on a spreadsheet and documented. So I know exactly what's in each bag and, and we really don't have any of those problems with, uh, customs or, or travel. Yeah. My favorite moment, one of my favorite moments of the trip is I got there a little earlier than you guys. And then I saw all you got your whole group with the anesthesia group and our residents and everybody was bringing a massive duffel bag <laughs> from Ohio right. State right. supplies. You, you were lucky being in Colorado. You didn't have to uh, bring that second I did bring, piece of luggage. <laughs> I did bring some gel foam. So I want to take some credit. <laughs> that's, that's right. You did. You did. <laughs> but speaking of, you know, the setup, you know, what are some of the essential to-do items or the groundwork that had to be established before the, the first trip or even subsequent trips, like, you know, the, the hospital, you know, getting permission from the hospital, what documents did they require of you and the participants before even going? Well, I've already talked about Dr. Lambert finding the location and the, mm -hmm. the hospital connecting us uh, then with Dr. Batista. I can't stress enough the importance of having that point person or, or organization in the country uh, that you're going to work in. Uh, so that you're not just performing surgeries and leaving the patients without the post-operative care that is essential really to achieving good outcomes. was also fortunate that the hospital had a living quarters on site, so we just needed to really obtain the equipment supplies. I now use donations, monetary donations, to purchase 
durable medical equipment like microscopes, instruments, and drills. But all of our disposable supplies are obtained from wasted materials in our own operating rooms here uh, that I gather throughout the year and, and re-sterilize. I forward everyone's medical or nursing license and a list of our supplies and medications to the Minister of Health in the Dominican Republic uh, in order to make our arrival hassle-free uh, when clearing customs and immigration. Uh, most of this really hasn't changed too much through the years. Uh, just in the last year or two, they've gotten a little more uh, strict or needy about wanting more documents, uh, our licensure, our diplomas, things like that. But uh, we've been able to to make it work. What did you have to do to get permission to start bringing trainees and residents? Was there any obstacles you had to overcome as far as the hospital being okay with that? No, the hospital was fine. I mean, it, the, the, the mission hospital where we work is actually, uh, for the most part, an ophthalmology center. It's a private mission group, uh, but they have an established ophthalmology residency and even uh, fellowships in retina, cornea, and such. Uh, so they're quite used to having trainees there. I think they just, you know, we wanted to be careful to make sure that neither the the doctors there nor the patients uh, felt that we were coming there to to practice in any way or or, or learn. You know, I I typically take very senior level residents and fellows, uh, so they're you know capable of doing these kinds of cases, and it's it's worked out fine. Same and same with the the anesthesia. Uh, department. Uh, they have two, typically two attendings and four residents to go, and they're all senior level folks. Yeah, I do. I remember the anesthesia folks. At least you know they they were able to function independently. Pretty much, they're they're ready to graduate. Right. Yeah, they're about now, ready to graduate. The local otolaryngology residency. Can you talk about how you developed a relationship with them? So we reached out to the Dominican otolaryngologists early on and, and worked to provide an atmosphere for teaching and collaboration. Uh, the residents there uh, are very busy with work in their own training hospital, and they weren't really allowed to participate in the projects uh, in the first uh, 10 to 15 years that we were going. Uh, I tried and tried, but just, just didn't have much luck. Uh, so eventually... I started to leave my group at the Mission Hospital uh, doing our normal work, and I would just go independently myself and spend two to three days working at the teaching hospital with the residents and faculty there. Um, I got them some equipment and uh, a microscope, a new drill, uh, because they were lacking in a lot of things there. It's, it's a public hospital. But we quickly formed a, a strong bond, and it has grown over the past 10 years so that now uh, they participate in the missions, and we also provide educational opportunities for them to spend a month or two here at Ohio State and learn advanced surgical techniques from all the faculty here. Yeah, and those, those residents were excellent. You know, and a lot, some of them even have like a general surgery background too, and we were quite impressed with what they're able to do. And they're yes, all the, yes. the, the culture there is wonderful. You know, they all look. They took us in like we were family, and you know, it's, there was really no breaking the ice period I felt at all, uh, you know, with the residents there, their faculty, but changing gears a little bit, was it, is it predominantly ear cases that you do there? I, when I was there with you, we only did ear cases, but uh, do you, you know, explore other aspects of otolaryngology there as well? Yes. I mean, because of our obvious uh, subspecialty, that's, that's what the original trips were set up to do. 
Um, I think I started taking audiologists uh, in 1999. So we started to be able to uh, branch out and do more hearing screening and uh, hearing aid fitting, things like that. Uh, eventually uh, did it so well that we encouraged the mission hospital there, the ophthalmology hospital, to develop its own hearing center. And so they now have a, an audiology technician training program and that kind of thing, which is, which is great. In terms of broadening uh, the, the surgical load, yes, uh, as we did more trips, I started bringing faculty from my own department and also from uh, University of Virginia, Medical University, Medical University of South Carolina, and really covering all subspecialties, including head and neck cancer, facial plastic surgery, rhinology, laryngology, and pediatric otolaryngology. Dr. Dotson, can you talk about the pathology that we see in the Dominican Republic, what what type of ear cases are we doing there? Yeah, I think by and large, uh, the majority of what what we take care of there is chronic ear disease, so uh, chronic draining ears, perforations, cholesteatoma, and the associated uh, conductive hearing loss that goes along with that. In addition, um, we have seen through the years a fair amount of congenital atresia. Not all of those patients end up being surgical candidates, but for the ones that are don't have resources like Bajas and, you know, bone bridges, OCS, the, the newer technologies. So if they qualify by CT scan for atresioplasty, then we'll perform that uh, surgery there. Do uh, probably a handful of stapedectomies uh, a year. Uh, there is otosclerosis in the country. Uh, very rare to see acoustic neuroma or vestibular schwannomas. Yeah, I, you might question, well, maybe they just aren't looking for them, but uh, the residents there assure me that they do get scans on, on patients with asymmetric hearing loss and that they just don't see it that much. Yeah, as you mentioned, um, you know, implantable hearing devices, and you know, I know you started the first implant program with Dr. Batista there. How did, how did the first cochlear implant program become established? It obviously requires more than just the surgical instruments for that. You know, you need audiology support, you need, you know, candidacy testing materials. How did all that get put together? Right. I think that was, I have to give most of that credit to Dr. Batista. I mean, he, I'm amazed, uh, even to this day, he does most of, of the mapping and programming of these devices post-operatively. Uh, so in addition to being the surgeon, he's also the audiologist. Now he has good technical support from Cochlear Corporation in that regard, but uh, he he does a lot of that work uh, himself. I think we started that program in 2006, somewhere around that range. And, you know, I really just provided the surgical support for the first couple of cases to make, you know, he was quite competent doing at doing chronic ear surgery at that point. So it wasn't that big of a step to teach him how to insert a device. And the company, again, was very supportive. Now, the one thing I will say is that, unfortunately, because of the cost of these devices, we're not able to provide the typical project ear patient with a cochlear implant. It's just cost prohibitive. So Dr. Batista has this cochlear implant program in his own private practice. Um, he can cater to kind of the middle and upper class uh, patient population, but but not the folks on the, the government health insurance or with no insurance at all. So hopefully, I know we've been uh, in our own specialty talking for the last 20 years about can we get a, a low-cost device, you know, that 
that could really open up to uh, the world in terms of untreated sensory neural hearing loss, but uh, just not there yet. Are the majority of cases outpatient procedures, or are there ever instances where you have to admit a patient to the hospital afterwards? Uh, very rare that we would have to admit someone. The The hospital does have, if you want to call them wards, I guess, or maybe six six beds in the room. Those those rooms are used for preoperative preparing of the patient and postoperative recovery. Uh, most of the chronic ears, stapedectomies, things like that uh, do typically go home the same day. But if they have uh, you know, a far travel distance, they live on the other side of the island, we may keep them overnight. A lot of them have to take public transportation, so that may you know, they may end up staying overnight because of that. But if we have a, you know, a bigger head and neck surgery type of case or a CSF leak, any kind of pathology that we would typically admit the patient here for, then we can certainly do that there. We sometimes keep the microtia patients that end up having a rib graft maybe for two or three days to, to make sure they're not getting any uh, fluid collection around their graft. Uh, of the ear and also that to control their, their pain. This last trip that we did, you know, you were able to take a couple of residents or at least send a couple of our Ohio state residents to the, the main hospital and they were able to participate in head and neck cancer cases there. And you know, right. the, Ohio, the Ohio state residents, it's really a, a wonderful opportunity. Um, and obviously you guys, the, the neurotology fellows at Ohio state COVID really prohibited me to be able to participate when I was actually a fellow. So it was now it was, uh, and attending, you know, is when I was finally able to go. How, how did COVID, you know, affect the trip overall, other than, you know, you can't go anymore, but what sort of <laughs> needed to be done to be able to reestablish the trip? Yeah, we just, I, Tuesday at our academy meeting, I was just serving on a panel uh, and then the title of it was uh, Medical Missions During COVID, How It's effect, Been Affected. And I said, I don't know if I'm going to have a whole lot to say on this panel other than we didn't go for two years, um, <laughs> which is, you know, the reality of it. So we we had just returned in February of 2020 uh, from our last mission and on the plane coming back, started hearing this news about something going on in Seattle. And, and you know, within another three weeks, our whole healthcare system was radically changed by the pandemic. Um because of the travel restrictions, we're, we weren't able to resume our missions until March of this year, the trip that you went on. But uh, one small blessing was that we all discovered Zoom, uh, and it provided uh, opportunities for teaching and collaboration that we hadn't really explored before the pandemic. So nobody loves Zoom, but it, it's certainly a good way to be able to do uh, participate in grand rounds, give lectures to them. And I know you helped me. Uh, when you were a fellow here, uh, do some lectures for the Dominican residents. No, and that that also helped. You know, when we went down there, you know, the the relationship is a little bit closer if you're already involved from an educational standpoint. Right. And you know, as a faculty member in the Dominican, you know, we get to work not only with our own Ohio State residents, but you get to work with Dominican residents too. And you know, some of the nuances down there. I didn't expect, you know, I just took for granted the fact that we have, you know, suction irrigating systems here and that's just normal. And in the, in the, in the OR sets, you know, with, for some reason, it, uh, as a new faculty, I go to a surgery center and if they don't have a suction irrigator, even though, you know, you think they would, and then you have someone bulb irrigating for you when you're doing a canal wall down or some big drilling case. And, you know, but whereas that's just normal down there. So for, it was great for me as a, 
you know, coming out of training, being spoiled and, you know, in all the places that I've been to have that. Whereas there, it's like, I just realized, I guess you don't really need any of that stuff. You just need some water. <laughs> right. And you just need to, yeah, need I the think drill. one of the, one of the things when I, when I give talks on, on project here and, and this kind of work that I always comment on is, uh, yeah, it's, yeah, the number one thing is we're helping patients and we're also teaching, but I think the participants in the trip also, you know, come back, change people. I mean, they're they're if they were a needy surgeon, quote unquote, uh, you know, all of a sudden, oh, we don't have that one particular instrument that you demand and you learn how to do it uh, with something else. And usually it works just fine that way. Uh, so I, I think I could probably do an ear case with, you know, four or five instruments uh, at this point in my career. Uh, and the, the, the Dominican faculty and residents certainly can, because that's what they're up against every day. And that's why I try to help them as much as possible with their, uh, resources. You know, one, one thing I remember is we had three rooms running. It was me in one room with a resident, you in one room with a resident and Dr. Batista in the third room. And if I, if I correct me if I'm wrong, but we had two nerve monitors for three rooms. Is that, was that right? Cause I remember we had to uh, facial nerve monitors. The- yeah. Yes, so we, that's correct. So we had to pick who gets the nerve monitor. And I remember an interesting conversation with Dr. Batista. You know, he had some interesting anatomy. He, he said he said he saw, and I was like, well, do, the, do you just try stimulate, stimulating it, the, the facial nerve or anything? And he was like, well, I don't trust the facial nerve monitor. I got to see it <laughs> with my eyes. And it's interesting how that's, that's we, we forget how, you know, accustomed we get to these, to these creature yeah, comforts. that's probably back to our, our early teaching of him in the, <laughs> In the mid '90s, when we told him, "Don't rely solely on a facial nerve monitor. Learn your anatomy and learn your surgical techniques." Oh yeah, yeah. so that's that's ingrained in him. So, but no, yeah. we can if we have a shortage like that, you know, we can hook the electrodes up, for example, and just leave them dangling, and then wheel the monitor between rooms if necessary. I mean, there's always ways to work things out. I also remember, you know, with equipment, you know, we saved the gowns to be able to use them to, you know. Was, was, was that what we did for re-sterilizing instruments? Can you talk about how we are processed there? Well, I think uh, the the nurses there are, are fabulous. I mean, I technically w- wouldn't need to bring my own nursing staff. I do it more just for their own education and for them to see uh, what it's like to, to work in a place like this. But the Dominican nurses uh, are very resourceful. I mean, they save and reuse everything that's possible at the same time, taking safety into consideration. So, if a uh, if the bottom you know two feet of your gown is clean, they might use that to then rewrap gauze and re-sterilize it under gas sterilization techniques. You, in other words, use it as blue wrap. Just things that we wouldn't even think about doing here, but uh, you know, I, I think sometimes it's an eye opener for for people first going like, oh, is that allowed is that dangerous but if you then kind of take a step back and look at what they're doing they're they're really not they're doing things that are are safe overall you know their sterility techniques and all that are mm-hmm. hopefully just as good as ours and we've really never had a problem with you know seeing any kind of increased post-operative infection rate or anything like that so. no you know despite you know all, all the equipment the limitations and all that i truly felt that the care we gave there was not any inferior to what we're we're doing here. And part of it is, you know, the basics of the equipment is the same. 
like you bring the drills with you and you bring the microscope with you. I remember you assembling a microscope out of a box down there. And I right. never even remembered, I never even thought about where the microscope is coming from. I assume it gets delivered in a truck like other big microscopes. And then, you know, you and Dr. Batista walk in with a suitcase and you open the suitcase and you just start putting it together like Legos. <laughs> then we used it for yeah. a surgery. <laughs> well, we, um, when we, we bought the two microscopes we're using now, um, bought them from Zeiss, um, you know, maybe about 10 years ago. And luckily the, there's a company here in Columbus, uh, called Cabbage Cases. You might see them, you know, bands that have big expensive amplifiers and, and music equipment. Uh, these cases can be custom made to carry any piece of equipment that you might have. And so I went over to them, showed them the microscope and they, custom made a cabbage case so that we could a get it on the airplane to bring it to the Dominican Republic and then b have it be able to travel amongst the hospitals where we need to use it down there so shifting gears a little bit lodging for the participants you know the mission hospital has housing quarters can you talk about who staffs that or is is that are, they, are those folks employed by the hospital there how was that how, how do we know that we have a place to stay we go down yeah, there. I think you know if someone were were looking into starting their own own mission trip or project, one of the things obviously is where are we going to stay, and you know a lot of countries might have the government more involved, and so they're putting you up in a hotel or some other. But I just we're very fortunate that this hospital has a living quarters right on grounds, and it is you know not the Hilton or anything, but it's. It's a lot better than probably most people anticipate if they've never been on the trip before. I mean, it's air conditioned. Uh, it occasionally has hot water, uh, not always. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's kind of a, formed like a duplex, and we live on one side. And then on the other side is the kitchen and dining room area. And so they have um, some employees there that work for the hospital. The woman that does our cooking is like my sister. I mean, I've known her for 20 years. She's a phenomenal cook. I always try to lose 10 pounds before I go on the trip, knowing that I will gain 10 pounds just eating her cooking for the week. But it's, you know, it's just great. Again, another example of just forming those friendships uh, through the years by doing this kind of work. Yeah. The food was amazing. I didn't, I didn't want to bring it up because then listeners will get jealous of us, but uh, it, was, it was the living quarters, <laughs> like like you said, much better than I had anticipated. And obviously, you know, showers, taking a cold shower is not the end of the world. You know, no matter how late we stayed up the night before, the shower will wake you up and then you will be able to go and <laughs> right. do whatever you need to do. Well, the, the first year when Dr. Lambert and I went uh, in 95, the house was not air conditioned. I remember sleeping under mosquito nets and with fans blowing directly on our head because uh, it was so hot. Uh, so things you know, really have gotten a lot better uh, through the years, both with the living quarters and the hospital itself. So. What about security? You know, our mission hospital, we had, you know, security guards there. Did you, was it always, was it always like that? Or would people, when they go on mission trips, you know, will everyone, you have to be aware, you know, where you're living, is it safe for your participants? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I've, I've never felt unsafe there other than I would say, you know, it is certain parts of the country are dangerous, just like any country would be. And so you have to be careful, like you don't go walking on the street by yourself at night. 
simple things like that. But anything there with value, there's usually always a security guard and usually they're armed. So it's, again, another one of those things where if I have a new participant and they say, what the heck is going on? That guy's got a sawed off shotgun standing 20 feet away from us. And I have just explained, oh, this is just normal security here. No big deal. But yeah, any anything that has value is going to be guarded there because of the poverty. Yeah. So as far as local medical community, you know, one would assume that, you know, medical mission work is providing quote unquote free care. You know, it's not always that straightforward. You know, we still sometimes had to discuss patient insurance. Can you talk about the local healthcare system in Santo Domingo and how patients, most patients there pay for their care, you know, the public versus private, you know, the government's involvement in that? Sure. Well, initially the, the mission hospital charged a small fee to the patients for the care they received from us. Uh, over the last 15 years, uh, the Dominican Republic has developed a national health care plan similar to our Medicaid system. This has actually created some problems for us because the system is underfunded and many of the poor are still not enrolled. So those who are enrolled are often confused because they think they can seek care at any public hospital in the country by holding this, this insurance card. Uh, but none of these hospitals has the equipment to do this kind of surgery. And most of the local ENT doctors don't participate in the plan because it pays so poorly. So we've had to uh, really do some work in the last eight to 10 years to increase awareness uh, with both the, the physicians and patients, if we can, uh, so that they know, you know, if I don't have insurance and don't have the resources to see a private physician, there's this organization called Project Ear where I can get help. Yeah. So the pay, so local providers or other ENTs in town, do you ever worry about the medical community there worrying about their patients waiting to get care by United States trained, you know, neurotology faculty uh, rather than getting it done locally? Did you have to ever worry about the perception that you're stealing business from the local providers? Yeah, I think we definitely took that into consideration. Uh, I think it's important when doing this kind of work that you don't have the idea that you're coming into a country as the doctor who knows everything and that the local doctors know nothing. Uh, the Dominican otolaryngologists are very well trained. They just don't have the resources to care for the underserved mm. population. Uh, we made it clear from the beginning that we were there to help the poor and to teach and that we wouldn't care for any patients that could be provided uh, yeah. by the local surgeons. Yeah. So have you turned down care to, to patients who have the insurance, the, the, the resources to be able to see the local providers? Early on, I remember we were invited actually to do a project here mission, but not do it at, at our longstanding hospital. It was a kind of a part government-owned hospital in the capital. And uh, they rolled out the red carpet for us. Uh, we lived actually just on an empty hospital ward there in the facility. Really excellent facility in terms of equipment and, and uh, physical plant. We did a trip, and then they wanted to have a meeting with us. And they said, well, we need you to operate on some private patients when you come for your next trip. And I said, 
Um, that's not who we are. That's not what we do. Uh, we're not going to do that. And they said, well, you know, we're having some issue with private patients complaining <laughs> that, that the poor are getting this care from doctors from the United States and they're getting care. And I said, well, whoa, whoa, time out. That's, that's not at all who we are. And I will go to bat for these Dominican otolaryngologists all day and say that they are competent to take care of these patients. And if they want assistance, I'm happy to teach them and help them, but I'm not going to take that patient on as, as a project year patient. So, and so we, uh, we really, they were kind of bullheaded about it, the, the hospital. So we just said, see you later. We're going back to the place that we've always worked and every, we've been there ever since. So. No, that's really good to hear. Th those considerations are probably really important for people thinking about starting a medical mission somewhere, knowing the lay of the land for, as far as the medical community uh, locally, how the insurance system works there and, you know, what patients are appropriate to provide care for and do surgery on. Um, so speaking of those patients, can you talk about the infrastructure of how those patients are teed up for the planned project ear trip and when the preoperative assessments. And then afterward we do, we put a bunch of gel foam in their ear uh, a lot of times. And you know, who, who ends up taking that gel foam out, who follows the patient up down the road. And do you ever hear about any of the outcomes or whether they'd be good or, you know, not so good outcomes? Right. Well, in terms of preoperatively, um, so we really have multiple resources now. So in the past, it was just Dr. Batista and he would actually travel around the country and kind of volunteer. We would typically do it on a weekend and say, you know, I'm coming here to this small town or village. I'm going to be here to examine patients. If you have people that have ear problems, have them show up. And he would fill the schedule just by doing that. That's, that's a lot of time on his part. And so as I got more uh, established with the residency program, uh, because a lot of their patients also use this government health insurance system. Uh, we've been able to have them now as a, a resource for, for patients. And also the residents that have graduated then from uh, the Dominican residency program since I've been, I think I've uh, 10 or 11 years worth of residents that I've worked with now. Uh, so a lot of them are out in different parts of the country, and as they identify patients that come into them, if they don't, if they have limited resources, then they uh, refer them on to us. Um, in terms of post-operative care, kind of the same. I mean, if if we uh, we keep keep pretty uh, good records in terms of what we've done and try to communicate all that to both the residency program and Dr. Batista and these private uh, physicians, former residents, so that uh, it makes it easy for them then to provide care. They kind of know what needs to be done. And again, back to the beauty of uh, modern technology, you know, we have WhatsApp, we have Zoom if necessary, or, or just normal texting so that we can stay in constant communication with them much easier than we could 25 years ago. That's awesome. Working with the local residents and faculty members, were there any surgical techniques that you learned from them that we aren't routinely using in the United States that, you know, when I was there, you know, just talking to them and seeing how they operate, there are some subtleties that I picked up just because their background is different than our background. Did you ever have any experiences like that? Yeah. I mean, I think back to the 
question I answered earlier about about them being well trained, and you know, I, I see it as a two way street uh, that that we learn a lot of things from them. We're not just going there, you know, again saying we know yeah. everything and they they don't. Um, so I've, for example, they do endoscopic ear surgery and and probably did it well before it became more popular here in the States. Uh, why did they do that? Because they didn't have microscopes a lot of the times at some of these hospitals. And so if they had a sinus endoscope and that was all they had, they learned to do it. And so, yeah, it's, it's a matter of just kind of watching them and, and, you know, conversing with them as you're doing a case and they'll tell you or ask you, Oh, doctor, why do you do, why are you doing that? Uh, this is what we do. And you compare the two and choose the better of the two. Also, you mentioned our, our residents going in and working at the at the residency training hospital on this last trip in March. I thought that was invaluable because it allowed our residents to see, hey, these guys are doing big head and neck surgery cases, you know, at a at a very high level, but with limited resources, so that things are different. You know, they might not have all the vascular clips and supplies that we have, even something as simple as a surgical stapler, but they get the job done and they do it well. Yeah, that's, I thought that was really valuable for me to see how the residents were doing things. You know, in the beginning, I was in a room and, you know, one of the Dominican residents was assigned to my room. And so I, I sort of, at the beginning, didn't really say much just to sort of see how he does and, and what he did. And I really didn't have to say much at all. He just sort of could just do the case. <laughs> and I was just right. secretly picking up tips from seeing how he was doing it. Going back to, you know, the history of the of project year, you know, what mistakes or lessons did you learn early on that you were able to improve upon on the more recent trips? Well, I think we've covered a lot of that already, but I'll, I'll add that as the head of the organization, I, I see it as my job to make it easy for people to participate. Being a type A person, I have spreadsheets and documents uh, that allow us to be precise in our supply gathering and, and patient care. It also allows folks here in the States uh, that actually aren't going on the trip to feel like they're participating. You know, they're helping me gather these supplies. They're, uh, I have a medical student organization at Ohio State that helps me uh, assemble the, the, pa the surgical packs uh, from all of this this uh, waste material that we collect and then help to get it re-sterilized. So, you know, it's, it's not as much mistakes as just kind of perfecting things that we didn't know early on. And, and as we gain more knowledge, just making it better and better. What was one of the biggest challenges you faced over the years with Project Deer? Uh, the national health plan that I mentioned earlier was a big one uh, because it left patients confused and not really knowing where to go for care. Another challenge was that it's it's always been my dream to potentially build our own dedicated center with a clinic, operating rooms, and living quarters. Uh, but despite working for a few years uh, to gather all the information required to make it a success, uh, we've been unable to get the assurance we need from the Dominican government that we can function within that national health care plan. So we were we were to the point where we really had it all laid out, uh, had an architect, had uh, about to launch the fundraising campaign to raise money for it. And uh, it just kind of all came to a screeching halt when the government kind of wouldn't play ball with us. Uh, they, they just said, build your hospital and then come and talk to us. 
And we said, no, we we can't really go out and raise, you know, four or five million dollars and not have assurances that that we're going to be able to do this work. So, so for physicians considering starting a medical mission trip that's not already established, what advice do you have for them, and what resources are there for newer physicians that want to establish a new medical mission trip? Yeah, I. Uh, first and foremost, I think it's important to understand the the time commitment required to run a successful operation and make sure you're you're truly passionate about it. I mentioned the point person or organization in the host country earlier, but i'll I'll add that it's key to know that your services are actually wanted in the host country. I mean that that i've I've read some material on that where you know people are trying to go in and do mission trips where, the, the local doctors really didn't want them there. Um, and that that potentially can be solved with, you know, developing relationships better, but oftentimes you're up against a no-win situation. So, you know, try to make sure that whatever country you choose, I, most of these trips, I think, honestly come about by word of mouth. You know, I, I think it's rare that you're going to get a call from some government or some doctor in a country saying, will you please come and and start a medical mission here. So, so developing those relationships uh, with the local doctors is essential. And finally, if you're thinking about developing a mission project, uh, I'd recommend participating in a mission uh, with a group like ours so that you can learn the ropes, so to speak. Uh, there's Our academy has a humanitarian efforts committee, uh, which is a great resource for those wanting to get involved. Um, I think they keep kind of a list of of groups like ours that are doing this kind of work. And I also belong to an organization called the Coalition for Global Hearing Health, which uh, Jim Saunders is uh, at Dartmouth is one of the physicians that heads that up. Uh, It's a great resource and they they have a yearly meeting and uh, really it's just a way for groups like us to get together and share our knowledge and experience uh, so that everyone can be more successful. Well, thank you. So. My last question for you, Dr. Dodson, is probably the most serious question of all. Um, who was the best project ear group you have ever had? Well, I don't want to get myself in trouble here, Varun. Um, I've been accused in the past of telling every group that they're the best group that's ever been. And I probably do feel that way to some extent. But uh, being old and of short memory, I would have to probably go back to the March 22 uh, group and say they're the best group ever. Yeah, I just wanted to really get that on a uh, re- recorded and notarized, and you know, for, for the our whole otolaryngology community to hear. I'm probably going to catch a lot of flack about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've certainly okay. learned a lot. <laughs> so I've certainly learned a lot from this episode that I was not aware of by simply joining Project Ears a Volunteer. You know, we would like to thank all the listeners so much for listening. I want to thank Dr. Dodson sincerely for sharing your time. If you have not already, you know, make sure you subscribe to our podcast. Rate Backtable ENT is five stars. Share it with all of your friends and colleagues. If you have any questions, please reach out to us at Backtable underscore ENT on social media. So Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. We look forward to having you guys back for our next episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore backtable ENT 
on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team lead is Karen Yen, with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz, with support from Taylor's version Hess. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.